Hi, I'm Ryan Dodge-Cook, and this is Summit to Talk About, your one-stop podcast for all things hiking, hills, wild camping, and the great outdoors. If you haven't already, go and binge the entire back catalogue of Summit to Talk About. With 34 previous episodes, there's plenty to get stuck into, from bushcraft, through hiking, mountains, big challenges in the outdoors, wild camping, wild swimming, van life, and loads more. Well, the weather has been awful this past couple of weeks, but it's great to see that so many of you are still getting outside. If you're looking on to 2023 already and planning your hiking adventures, you should definitely check out the Hiker app. Hiker just keeps on growing and growing. Packed with thousands of trails all over the world, they have you covered for all your mapping and GPS needs. Download the app for free to start exploring straight away. And why not treat yourself or someone else to Hiker Pro to unlock all of the cool features? Click the link in the show notes right now. It's been a long time coming, and I can finally say that I've managed to get hold of someone from our fantastic mountain rescue teams to come onto the podcast for a chat. I'm really excited to share this one with you, and I hope you can take the time to appreciate the selfless commitment made by the volunteers who make up our mountain rescue teams. I'm joined by no less than Mike Margeson, OBE, who is the Operations Director for Mountain Rescue England and Wales. Listen out near the end for Mike's top tips for heading into the mountains this winter. I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you so much for giving up your time because uh, I appreciate Mountain Rescue are generally busy all across the board and it's actually been a while in the making this because I've uh, I've actually been messaging uh, a few different a few different teams across the country and unfortunately and uh, unfortunate for them as well that they've actually been quite busy and they've not been able to give me the time to do that so I appreciate that you've been able to do that this afternoon so thank Delighted you to try and help yeah um what it is oh what, what I'll do Mike because I've got I've probably got loads of questions in my head but like I don't have any set questions so we'll chat away as I, as I generally do um but if you could just introduce yourself because uh, you are a part of Mountain Rescue England and Wales, so no specific team, more of the umbrella body. So if you could introduce yourself and and, and how you come to yes, be in yeah, that I'd, post, that would be brilliant. That. Um, and give a bit of a background picture in the same, you know, covering how a little bit how we work. I think the first and foremost thing everybody needs to understand, and a lot of, this is a bit of a misconception for some people, all mountain rescue team members are volunteers. It's not a paid service in any description. Um, it's all funded by the public and their donations to help keep the service running. Um, we are talking about a service that is um, somewhere north of 3,000 volunteers in England and Wales, uh, and somewhere in the region of about 54 different uh, rescue teams from down in Exmoor right up to you know the northeast teams uh, and the Lake District on the Scottish border. So we've got seven or eight different regions and, e- and in each region there'll be a number of different teams. I'm based in the Lake District uh, with the Dublin Furnace team which borders with the Wasdale team and the Coniston team on the west side um, and we have 10 teams in the Lake District. I probably started in mountain rescue very much the same as uh, many of our members in as much as therefore the grace of God go I. 
uh, and being a lover of the mountains and climbing and whatever, um, it was a case of um, really maybe this is something I ought to do. And I tried to put it off for quite a while. Um, but I got to a point of uh, a situation of, through my work, working for Outward Bound uh, in the Lake District. At that point, Outward Bound were mountain rescue team. So as a member of staff, as an instructor there, I didn't have any option. I was a, a member of a mountain rescue team. When I left Outward Bound, uh, and I was just at a <laughs> prefix that my full-time work is, is as a mountaineering instructor. Um, having had that experience without a bound as a member of a team, I thought, well, really, I ought to continue this. So I joined my local team. And for my sins, I, I was quite quickly training officer and then a deputy and then a team leader. Uh, and then I found myself voted by my peers in the region be put forward to be one of our national officers, uh, which I've now been doing for many, many years. I was an equipment officer for the national body, then the training officer. And my present role is the operations director for uh, England and Wales. And that, that that's a role that is complemented by about 12 other officers, you know, in, in every area, a medical director, an IT person, you know, equipment, helicopter rescue side. Uh, we're just about to develop a new uh, working group on drones because uh, drones are beginning to come into mountain rescue as another resource. Um, so that, that's how I kind of ended up at a, as a national officer uh, through many, many years. I'm, I'm just coming up to 42 years as a volunteer in mountain rescue. Um, so I've had a lot of different roles. Wow. <laughs> wow. So you, you have, yeah, a lot of different calls and a lot of different experience and no doubt you have, uh, you've learned a lot of things along the way and, and also probably taught a few things as well. Um, so I, I will come on to that in a little while, the sort of, the sort of call outs that, that you do generally. Um, and I, I guess there's a wide mixture of that. Um, but you you say you you joined mountain rescue in a in a more um it, almost like most people do um what does it take do you think to become uh, a mountain rescue team member um it takes a very understanding family or partner number one you know when a a call's coming at two yeah. o'clock in the morning and disturbing the household and heading off out or a lovely Sunday meal's just been made and you've got family or friends and you're going out the door before you've been able to sit down and eat it, first and foremost, it it takes a commitment of all your family and, and relatives. They're as much as a support of Mountain Rescue as you are, really, putting up with it. Um, I, I think, you know, yeah, I think I imagine. it's hugely changed. You know, when I, when I first was involved, um, we really sort of went up the hill, did a little bit of minor first aid, took somebody off, and that was it. Uh, you know, now you've almost got a paramedic service on the mountainside. Um, the level of training that uh, team yeah. members and the commitment is probably four or five times more than it used to be. 
because of the standards expected, um, the equipment that is used, and the range of other activities that we're involved in, like flood rescue and um, urban search, major incidents, uh, the range of skills, techniques, equipment that we have now uh, are just in a completely different place to when I joined. So the level of, of commitment is pretty massive. I think probably for most team members, it's at least one or two full days training a, a month and maybe one or two evenings a month and then call outs as well. Um, so every team has to have quite a reasonable number of members because, you know, people's availability is uh, is is varied. You know, some team members can do evenings and weekends and can't get off work. Some employers allow you off work. And that issue in the present financial climate and with the increasing number of call-outs year on year is a bigger and bigger pressure for an employer, you know, you rushing off. And it could be for a whole day. It's a big job. Yeah. Um, it it, it yeah. takes commitment from your family and friends. It takes commitment from your employer. Uh, and then obviously a very huge commitment, both mentally and physically, uh, from you as a rescuer. I don't know if that helps answer some of that question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, because, we, you know, many people are aware of Mountain Rescue. Um, th those that listen to the podcast will be fully aware of Mountain Rescue and the work that you do. Um, we were most probably all aware that you are volunteers. Um, but actually, what I, I was looking at what, you know, what does it take to become that become that person who who is up at two o'clock in the morning, who is dropping everything um, at any given time to come and help people out on the mountains? Because clearly, as as an outdoors enthusiast myself, as a hiker, uh, as many of the listeners are for the podcast, we we all go out there and we obviously we know you are there in the background. Um, but I think that until we need you, um, we we could easily mm -hmm. quite we could quite easily take you for granted. And the, the the thought of just dropping your Sunday meal, just dropping things late at night when you you're with your family, three hundred and sixty five days a year, no matter what it is you're doing, to have that commitment is. Um, is something else it really is and uh, I mean I, I can easily uh, applaud all of you on behalf of all of the listeners that I've got and, and probably the nation but um, yeah I just wanted to sort of see what sort of commitment is and I suppose the the big thing is is the family commitment I, I never really yeah. considered that I mean there are some obviously amazing upsides you only have to have one rescue a year that you've actually definitely 100% made the difference for somebody making it or not uh and all of this all of the silly call outs yeah. you go to that were uh, avoidable uh and all of the all of the work and the frustration goes out the window for a while because of the satisfaction of knowing that you hadn't been there if you, you, you and your colleagues hadn't been there that that person wouldn't be here anymore um you know i think you, the the harsh reality of it is that uh that sometimes Sometimes it isn't successful. Uh, you know, in my own region, we probably, between the uh, 10 teams, deal with maybe on average about 20 fatalities a year. Um, there is a downside, but there's a tremendous upside with all the successful rescues 
where you've really made a difference. And I think that's what keeps people going. There's a tremendous friendship and comradeship between team members. Uh, you you know, you become one big family as a as a team, uh, and support each other with the amount of time you're spending training and and working together. You know, you really get to know each other as a as a close knit group, and and with your fellow team teams on either side of your borders, maybe that you work with a lot as well. In terms of being rewarding, Ryan, uh, uh, as um, there's absolutely no doubt that you know if you make one successful rescue where you've made a difference as a team or a group of individuals, that keeps you going for all of the silly rescues that you have to go to and the wet nights and dark nights and hours and hours of training. Um, it makes it all worth it. Uh, and most team members are going to go to a number of recipes every year that yeah, of course it does, are satisfying yeah. like that, that you know you've made a difference. I suppose it's bittersweet in that you don't want to be going to those those really, uh, those really almost sometimes tragic uh, rescues, but um, actually they're the ones that make it all worth it when you say getting up at late at night or putting all those hours of training in, uh, they make it worth it and, and that reward and that reward you get from it. Yeah, I think, I think some of the really, really challenging, I think, Ryan, some of the really, really challenging uh, rescues, and are, I can tell you for many, many, over a thousand rescues I've attended, uh, things very rarely are what they seem to start with, with, a, with an incident. Often there's misinformation and things turn in a different direction than you ever dreamt they would at the beginning. And some of those really, really challenging uh, rescues where yeah. you've actually had to use all of those skills and put all of that experience together, they're the ones that are, you know, the most rewarding. Um, uh, because Mountain Rescue is definitely always, in the famous outdoor writer's words, uh, an adventure with a very definitely uncertain outcome. Uh, that's that's for sure. Um, yeah. So w- when yeah. <laughs> experience and judgment and uh, all the training that the team have done actually work um, and we have a successful outcome, it is very rewarding for team members. Um, and I think that, that you know, the, the, that joint experience of a group of people that are quite close knit because of the amount of time we spend together uh, um, is really valuable and important. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just think. About- yeah. Yeah, I suppose you you do have to be like I think you you were alluding to the fact that there's a great camaraderie between team members, and I suppose that is so important because you work in mm. um, in some of the most adverse conditions in high pressure situations where you just have to gel. Um, and there's no room for any disagreement at that at that at that time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we have very definite systems, and you know, deputy leaders and party leaders and mm. people are, um, you know, skilled in various different areas, and everybody pretty much knows each other's strengths and weaknesses and what they're able to do and what they're not. And it's about looking after each other. 
everybody's responsible for everybody else, not just the party leader or the team leader. Uh, you know, that that's yeah. that that's critical. And we come first. There are times when I was a team leader and I actually once or twice called the team off the hill to wait for a few hours so the weather was a little bit less inclement. Wow. Uh, which is a very, very difficult yeah. thing for all team members and the team leader to do. But they tick I think members have to come first. Their safety has to yeah, come first. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. You're no good as a rescuer if you're the next casualty. Yeah. No, of course not. No, I mean, your team members need to be in in top form um, because inevitably they're going to be the ones that are potentially going to be carrying somebody down the hill. And, yeah, their safety is paramount. Of course it is. And, you know, they're going into the same conditions. Yeah, well, as, we're as going out when in. everybody's coming off the hill because it's too bad. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going up there in the yeah. in the best conditions most of the time, are you? Um, so we, we touched on there um, some of the types of uh, call outs that you get. And you, you said some of them are obviously uh, quite big call outs and, and really sort of serious incidents. Um, let's let's have a look at some of the incidents you get called out to, because um, I, I appreciate having seen some of the Facebook posts and the updates from various different teams across the country that Many of the call-outs are to do with um, errors in equipment or errors in navigation. Would you say that that's quite a um, common well, call-out for you? First and foremost, we we obviously want to share our views and uh, help educate the public, uh, but we're not the mountain police. Uh, and we accept everybody's going to make mistakes, but we would like to share <laughs> yeah. best practice, obviously, just like the British Mountaineering Council or Mountain Training England. Uh, you, you know, or venture smart. Uh, you know, I would advise all folk to go to the three pieces of advice and things you should follow on the venture smart uh, website. Whether it's going canoeing, whether it's going to the mountains, you know, doing anything in the outdoors, those three things and things that people should consider are are vitally important. But you know, yeah, mm. we do get called to a number of incidents that are you know inexperience uh you know i mean i i've we have national figures yeah. back accurately to about 1990 uh uh you know we collate the statistics uh and you know you can look at you can look at human error as anywhere between 15 and 20 percent of causational of, a, of an incident and it, it's a bit like the right, uh, okay. you know three lemons in a row it's just, it's never often just one little thing it's things building up till they become a real problem you know i mean we we yeah. continually go on about you know yeah what you're carrying with you uh what the weather is what is the objective for the day and is that actually realistic with your own previous experience uh you know th those kind of basic three things are are our core yeah. messages as are they on the adventure smart um but on the 2022 figures and statistics i've got up me on the pie chart inexperience 16.1 percent uh human error 16.5 percent poor decision making 13%. And those are kind of um, ballpark figures taken out of 
all the statistics mm. are sent in from the teams and regions nationally. And then, you, you, you know, it all breaks down into things like um, yeah, uh, visibility, footwear, you know, what was the wind, what was the was the snow and ice conditions under your feet? What were people's fitness? What was the time of the year? Um, you know, there are a whole lot of factors that are, are, are affecting um, the numbers, but the numbers are just going up year on year. Uh, yeah, it's a fairly steady graph going up over the years. And there are lots more things happening in the mountains than ever used to happen. You know, all sorts of challenge events, uh, people paraponting, mountain biking, you know, yeah. reasonable little chunk of uh, new things that mountain rescues yeah. go to. And uh, that's very popular, obviously. Uh, and obviously, you know, 10 years ago, that was very rare that we got a mountain bike uh, call out. And now it's now it's relatively regularly. Yeah. Um, and they tend to be quite nasty um when we do get called to them because no yeah, and also mountain well, bikes, they're not going slow are they <laughs> they're pretty hardy people and they're not going to call us unless it's something serious uh they're going to drag themselves or their mates are going to drag them off off the mountain yeah um and i think there is um there's a whole new demographic obviously since covid of people who found the outdoors and started you know for well-being and health and whatever going into the outdoors, which is wonderful. Um, but obviously many yeah. of those have very, very limited, maybe previous experience of wilder, wilder areas and uh, uh, um, mountain areas. Um, yeah, the numbers just keep going up year on year. You know, I think Lamberis team... Yeah, I mean, that was, that was one of the things I was going to, I was going to go into that about about COVID being um, a sort of driver in the amount of people we're now seeing in the outdoors, and I think that that's that's even evident in just going out walking and seeing people out and about. And uh, I mean, I think I I know a few people who, who even guests on the podcast who have spoke about this, where you know there's people who are out in the hills and they might ask you for directions, and then when you ask them. Um, to show us, say, oh, just show me where you are, where your map is, and all of a sudden they've not oh, got a map yeah. with them. That that yeah. worries me sometimes. Um, but yeah. yeah, it is a great thing that they are out, that they want to get out, and I think that we're onto a winner with that. However, we now just need to educate them, and things like Adventure Smart is a great way to. It's a great signpost for people to go and to go and have a look at that, or um, maybe go on a, a basic map reading course or, or something along them lines. And there's loads of different resources now online about what, what correct yeah. equipment to wear, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's all out there. It's oh, just it's how, how we mean, educate people. I'll give you a really good example of that. Uh, the number of cases maybe that we would deal with where hyperthermia is the predominant cause of the call-out are very few because modern equipment is, is so good, right. is relatively reasonably priced, uh, yeah. that everybody really can get pretty good pretty good clothing for the mountains. And that's massively reduced the number of cases, really, of first instance of the call being somebody with uh, hypervermia. But obviously somebody injured, the minute they're immobile, yeah. they're more likely and prone to become cold and uh and perhaps hypothermic but 
going back, there used to be many, many cases of, of that was a primary cause of, a, of an incident. Um, and equipment is, and clothing has improved right, so okay. massively. I mean, people will, ha- will have their three or four or even five for the worst conditions layers uh, and not, you know, be quite reasonably good equipment. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a real upside. Yeah, I mean, ob- obviously, um, that that question you said about um, you know stop somebody stopping you and saying where am I? Well, I've lost count of the number of times I've had that, uh, yeah. and it is worrying. And that, that's why our message yeah. is uh, is an educational message, not a preaching message. Um, and I I continually use this term, mountain rescue yeah, volunteers. Of course, yeah just do not want to be known as the, the, you know, the mountain police. That's not our role. We're there to help everybody and anybody, whatever the situation. Um, no. And we, like you were saying, are, are absolutely delighted that more and more people are getting into the outdoors and benefiting from, you know, what can be life-changing experiences, having uh, amazing experiences in the outdoors. Uh, and that definitely, absolutely, has been proven. It's so good for your well-being and mental health, and your physical health as well. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we want to encourage people with ways of, yeah, of being safe. Absolutely. And hence, we have a lot of stuff on our national MREW website. Teams have on their own websites uh, lots of tips, top tips, and advice. Um, like you were saying, there are a number of different, including Adventure Smart, um, uh, places to go and find. There's never been more access to good, good quality yeah. safety and best practice information. It's just getting it to those new demographics, really, I think. Uh, and, you, you know, it Absolutely. might be that, you know, your audience we're talking to the converted already. <laughs> it's how we get to a wider audience. Yeah, well, <laughs> there there is that, but I do have a lot Good. of new uh, new listeners um, and people who are new into the outdoors. Said, "Oh, I've just come across the podcast, and I get a lot of questions on um, asking for advice on this, that, and the other that I can signpost." So even if we just help one person, you know, by adding yeah. adding an adventure yeah. smart link onto yeah. the show notes of this website, uh, onto the show notes of the podcast, for me that's a win because that's one potential less call out for you yeah well event smart uh, ourselves obviously the british mountaineering council has um bmc tv has loads and loads of really great short little youtube and uh, Mm. uh, little clips and good advice and whatever um you know the bmc british mountaineering council is the national governing body for hill walking and climbing and mountaineering, um, you know, so they have a lot of really good information there as well. Yeah, I think it's just about getting that message out there. And even if uh, a podcast like this one can can help, then then brilliant. Um, just going back then, so we've had the, we, we spoke about some of the, the the smaller call outs. Then what about the big ones? And I guess these are the ones that, um, like you said before, are worth it. Make it make it worth all those training hours and the commitment that the families and the tr- the team members put in um 
what are some of those? I'm guessing that the majority of those are, are serious yeah, injuries on um, the hills. You know, maybe a seriously injured person that's in a an unexpected place that takes some time and numbers of teams to actually locate the person. Uh, you know, with any kind of big operation, um, the golden lesson that sometimes has to keep being relearned is, you know, throw everything at it to start with while your opportunities of the outcome are as high as they possibly can, you know, rather than building something up and up and up and up, uh, you know, go at, go at it with lots of resources to start with while to be blunt, you know, somebody's still alive potentially. Mm. Um, I think some of the bigger jobs actually are sort of more major incidents where whole regions, uh, uh, involved, um, you know, whether it's wintry conditions. Uh, I think some of the bigger incidents are kind of maybe whole regional incidents or cross borders even, you know, with flooding, with um, uh, major snow events. Uh, you know, these sometimes go on for several days where we'll set up a gold and silver command at, at uh, police level uh where there'll be rotoring of of teams in well some of the very biggest incidents uh will be actually regional you know county based uh or even across across borders um where you might have sort of major snow events which might go on for several days uh you might have um Significant flooding events recently have, you know, have been more and more often, in fact. So when we had the Carlisle floods, you know, teams were coming in from Scotland and from the northeast yeah. and, and um, from all over the northwest and even from North Wales. When the York floods happened, uh, Cumbrian teams were down there in York, as were North Wales teams. And I think it's far down as Dartmoor came, came up to it. Um, you know, some of these major events can go, can go on for days. And wow. a gold and silver command system is set up. Uh, and there's a whole lot of logistics uh, around yeah. thinking about how long somebody's going to work as a, uh, as a as a rescuer and their safety and fatigue, you know, I think is something that's really, really important. And we have learned. And now certainly in my region, when there's a big incident, yeah. if it goes beyond about 12 hours, we set up it, we, we, we make it more a regional thing and have uh, teams taking stints uh, and, a, and a control that's taken away from the initial team that's call it was so that you've got fresh people and fresh eyes and fresh leadership and management on, on an incident. Yeah. You know, so the, the, the way we deal with big incidents uh, in the last kind of 10 years uh, has changed significantly because of the number of big incidents we've had to the opportunity to learn from and, and move forward with. Uh, I think the in, interoperability between ambulance services, fire and rescue, the police and ourselves is a whole different place than it used to be, um, where it used to be at best fragmented, uh, good in some places and not so good and all the rest of it. Now there's a much more joined yeah. up system, uh, <laughs> for us working collectively together. Um, 
which is great. It's fantastic to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I suppose the it's important as well because I, I mean, a lot of a lot of the the callouts you do will will All include other agencies and and particularly the um, the ambulance service or um yeah so it, it's that that Absolutely. joined up approach is yeah. is key really um as opposed to you being sort of a standalone service yeah i mean now i can pick up an airwave set and talk directly to a, a police control uh you know inspector uh and not have to pick up a phone and go through a system you know um yeah, our communications are, and we also have yeah. a um, a calling system and logging system that we can all see. So I can see what the police are doing. I can see what the fire service or ambulance are doing on a right. system called Sarkal, and that's revolutionised um, that sharing of information, uh, um, real time, live time, and seeing what's actually happening, what's gone on, what hasn't gone on. Um, is absolutely critical to effective working together. Yeah. Well, um, so what I want to move on to is um, the importance mm. of fundraising because we, we've touched on it, how it's a volunteer service um, and some of the equipment that you have and the vehicles you have are, are you know, they're such top-notch stuff, you know. It's not sort of no. um, a makeshift stretcher and... Um, a few a few headlamps you know it's, it's some some a lot of equipment yeah. is required to do the work that you do so how how important is fundraising i mean it's, it answers its own question it's ridiculously important i mean in terms of cost well there therein lies a real you know a real challenge really you know particularly with the financial uh, situation we're in at the moment and then sort of through covid uh each team is an independent charity. Yeah. Um, each team raises its funds to run it, its operation independently. The central body provides some help with uh, some yeah. insurance through the funds that it raises, but most teams are, you know, as a charity, need to be having enough funds and even in reserve to be able to run the team for at least a year if, if Nothing came in. That's what the Charity Commission suggests yeah. of trustees of teams. Mm. So the smallest team, the smallest team I would estimate would be right. thirty-five to 45000 a year to run. And the bigger teams double or triple that. Um, right, okay. The, the bigger, busier teams maybe have a higher profile. Um, yeah. Therefore, it is a bit easier for them to get funds in from tourists uh, um, and uh, the public because um, they're better known. And, you know, I mean, if, yeah. if, as I said, you know, Lamberis or Ogwin team or Keswick team or Langdale Ambleside, you know, they're very famous locations and huge numbers more people visiting than than some of the quieter uh, uh teams and less well-known teams but it doesn't really matter you know yeah. even if you acquire a smaller team it's probably even harder to raise that smaller amount of money um and it is a big drain it's, it's a big drain on team members that yeah they, yeah i suppose it's most teams have sword, some supporters who aren't active team rescuers who help with fundraising 
But still, most team members still have to go and do fundraising events and raise, spend time trying to raise funds as well as training, as well as call out. Yeah, that, but, you know, it, it is a big challenge. And as yeah. you say, we have a lot of really quite specialist and expensive equipment. Um, and, you know, it, it, keeping the funds coming in to keep teams going is just another challenge, yes. Um, we have no money, you know. We, yeah. yeah, I can it, imagine it that being the biggest yeah. challenge. And, you know, teams have to sit down and have really difficult conversations about uh, expenditure uh, and, you know, priorities sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, the last thing that any team would want is to be able to say, you know, we, we can't come out on this call because we just don't have the funds to do that or we don't have the equipment to do that or our yeah. equipment isn't serviced or whatever it might be. Um, and so, you know, every penny that you, you guys can raise yeah. is going straight back into it. And, yeah. You know, it's one of those, isn't it? it we, we never know when we're going to need Mountain Rescue. Nobody goes out there with the yeah. plan to say, I'm going to get yeah. Mountain Rescue out Absolutely. Today. I mean, obviously, we'd be completely opposed to the Always when various incidents happens, you know, people are saying, you know, stupid people, why aren't they charged? And, you know. Or even at one stage, I think in Scotland, they were talking about, oh, everybody should have to have yeah. insurance. Uh, you know, you know, we're pretty much, I'm sure I'm speaking for all of my, my, my colleagues, we're pretty opposed to all of that kind of, kind of stuff. Um, um, you know, we get yeah. legacies sometimes yeah. from, from people, from the family of people that we've rescued or, or whatever. Um, but really, f funds and fundraising is, just another challenge uh, that every charity, whatever they are, uh, faces, and, and particularly at difficult financial times as the country's in at the moment, you know, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. You know, numbers keep going up. It doesn't get, you know, yeah, it I probably mean, gets it harder to raise funds as, as we go thing. on. And the numbers and incidents... Uh, Keep and our demand uh, keeps increasing. So that's a that is an interesting challenge. Yeah, and I think it's more important than ever, like you say, with the with the increasing numbers of people going out in into the mountains or into the hills. Um, there's obviously the the increasing call outs, um, but I imagine that there's a steady flow of of fundraising or or funds coming in, um, which probably isn't no. increasing or reflecting the no. amount of people. That and are out. if you think about you know any many, many you know, you think probably yeah. about so some of it's more you know, maybe the more significant um, um, sponsors. Um, every business is under massive pressure at the moment. And the first thing they're going to look at is, you know, who they're sponsoring and, you know, yeah. who they're donating to and, and whatever. In every direction, um, getting funds in for any charity, not just Mountain Rescue, is incredibly challenging at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will certainly be putting a uh, link on the show notes for people to yeah. uh, to donate to to whoever. Um, we'll discuss that afterwards, definitely, because I think that's it's really important. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I would say there's two things around there. You know, if you live in a mountain area, try and find out what your local region is or your local mountain rescue team, and donate directly to your local team. Uh, 
you know, if you're living in a conurbation or not a, you know, a yeah. mountain area, uh, sure, you can you can always gift aid and make sure whenever you give anything to us, whether it's to a team or to Mountain Rescue in Wales, make sure you do gift aid with it as well so we can collect that, uh, which gives another 20%, obviously, yes. uh, in tax back on Absolutely. any donation. Yes, definitely. Um, what I want to move on to is, is if you could, uh, I'll, I'll put you on the spot a bit now, Mike. <laughs> I want you to talk us through, um, a, a talk us through a call out. So, um, we'll, we'll say that I'm an injured party. I've um, I've slipped and I've injured my leg, um, potentially fractured it. Let's go down yeah. that route. Um, and I'm, let's say I am, uh, I'm on the old old man yeah. Coniston. So I've called the police. That's the first call, isn't it? You ring the police and then ask for mountain yeah, rescue. Yeah, so 999, ask for mountain rescue when you're asking um, service. That call comes. And that. That's right. And then that call call comes through to you. And what happens So, then? yeah, the, the call comes through by an SMS text. And some, some teams it will come through to just the team leadership. Uh, my own team, we it comes to every member of the team. So they immediately know that something might be going to happen. Um. Then a team, a, you know, a team, a duty team leader. Uh, most teams will have a, you know, a, a, the team leader, and then three or four deputy team leaders, and you take then take that in rotor to cover uh, picking up the first call and being in charge of that job. Um, so that person will pick up the the message, go straight onto the circle log, which the minute you phone the police, a log for this incident is beginning to be created. Um, and okay. we'll either get direct information uh, as to you or your contact person and we'll want to speak to you directly. And one of the things we will want to do okay. immediately is to verify your location and the information that's all initially come in. Uh, so we do that by two things. We do that okay. by um, speaking to you and also trying to do what, we call uh, a phone find or a SAR lock, which is basically for your mobile signal that you were able to contact the police. We can then uh, yep. pinpoint your exact location. Um, that That's really important. So we can just send you, if the signal's bad, we can send you an SMS and you just have to say, yes, I agree to the GGPR data yep. sharing and we'll find out where you are. Um, so, you know, wow. talking to the informant or the casualty is the really very first thing because information and its accuracy is critical. While I, while the team leader is doing that, yeah. you know, probably the call will have gone to the, the team and the team will be assembling and it could take anywhere between 10 minutes and 20 minutes maybe or even less in some cases, for a first response to get away. And the first response will probably be four or five right, people okay. with some, you know, critical medical equipment, if it's a loan location, this is. Uh, yeah. And that will be the resp first response group to you. So Coniston T, I'm, I'm sure, would have somebody away in 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, probably if it's the old man, would have, somebody within with you within half an hour 40 minutes at the very least at the very most depending exactly where it was right. um and then yeah once that first team are there they can 
do any what, what I would call primary care, initial stuff that is needed, and more importantly, absolutely identify what equipment, how many personnel, what the weather is at the at location, uh, is the nature of the injury, you know, but the nature of the injury might have been that we were called air support quite early. Um, you know, it's, like, it's a life-threatening right, okay, injury. Yeah. Uh, uh we will talk with the chief, you know, the uh, control room inspector and have a discussion about whether we can have air support. Now, air support might be uh, an air ambulance. Yeah. Uh, if it's daylight hours uh, and a location that yeah um, doesn't need winching or if it needs those things or it's night or whatever, it might be a Coast Guard resource, the big, big helicopter with winch. Um right. But they might not be available. Yeah. They might already be deployed. The weather might preclude it. You can never guarantee on that. So we always assume that we're going to have to do it. And if we can get them, yeah. if it's a serious incident, it's a bonus. Um, so, yeah, you'd, get, you'd yeah. probably get anywhere between at least 15 to 20 team members probably on, on scene for a stretcher off um, um, because you need to take turns at it and it you know can be – quite physically hard work yeah of course. Uh, and a known location is probably going to be you know something like the old man it's probably going to have you off the hill in an hour to an hour and a half um whereas if it was sort of yeah. up the upper esk or on Scarfell uh or somewhere high on ben Kaffer or Hovellan, you know it's going to be yeah double that time and more um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that that's how it, it it's going to be. So you, in terms of your casualty care, we have a casualty care qualification, um, which allows us to use a whole lot of uh, reasonably advanced techniques, including, you know, using uh, pain killing drugs and leg splints and, you know, yeah. oxygen. Uh, you know, you're going to get very very first class. Uh, looking after once we're with you yeah and like you say once upon a time i'm guessing that that wouldn't have been the case it <laughs> no. been, you know very very basic yeah first pretty aid, basic anything. um yeah i mean yeah. we we have had the use of um quite strong drugs for a very long time uh and we're in a very privileged position that's good uh with the home office that they've appreciated for many, many years, the situation we are in terms of quite often quite multiple trauma casualties in remote situations, we do need that yeah. ability to use, you know, what are controlled drugs, basically, um, that you'd expect a paramedic or a doctor to be yeah. using. But we do have a very, very uh, high-quality casualty care training programme. Um that anywhere between a half, which is half and a third, you know, a third and a half of probably most team members go through that on a three yearly basis uh, to renew it. Um, we would never expect, you know, all all wow. team members to do it, and it will vary from one team to the next. How many are going to give that extra commitment to be that that competent, take that responsibility? Yeah. 
Oh yeah, that's a lot of responsibility for a volunteer to be taking upon their shoulders. So yeah, again, these are these are all things that you know. I'm glad that I've been able to have the chat with you because these are things that I wouldn't have been aware of, and I'm sure many others wouldn't have been aware of. And you know, we understand that there are some elements of um, first responder, first aid training, but to 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 that level is um, that's an eye opener for myself. So yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, coming, I mean, my own team at the moment. Uh, you know, we we you know, most teams do their CASCARE training and exams uh, once a year, with a small bunch spending three months, one night, even two nights a week for three months, running up to their uh, exams. Um, you know, you're talking about a very full-on, serious commitment. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is a big commitment. So let's go back to me as the casualty. You've got me on the stretcher now and we're coming down off the hill. What's next? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you would have been made comfortable. Any Anything that needed to be done to you in terms of analgesia or oxygen, uh, probably a vacuum mattress. A vacuum mattress is a, um, a way of splinting the whole body. Uh, so basically it's a mattress with yeah. a load of beans in it that you put somebody on, then you suck the air out and... Mold it round the person, and uh, you know you've got almost a full body splint. Way better than using a spinal board because uh, yeah. you're going to be, you know, and then you're in a casualty bag as well. So you're very, very well packaged. Uh, checked <laughs> regularly on on route, uh, and then it will be you know the handover to a, a, a helicopter landed somewhere nearby, or eventually there hand over to uh, an ambulance crew. And then is there a, a debrief system in place for the team? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, we will have a hot debrief. Uh, once the ambulance has left, we will have an on-the-spot hot debrief about, you know, any issues, uh, how did it go, whatever. Yeah. And then we'll probably have some more kind of formal uh, uh chat as a team at a later date as well but the, the hot debrief is really important um we have a very mm. good yeah it, it's interesting when we i don't want to be sort of somebody always harking back to the past but when there were not very nice incidents and difficult incidents we just went down the pub and had a chat uh um the world's yeah. moved on from yeah. that that we still do that but that's not looking after the well-being of uh team members you know anybody whether they're new to the team or have been in the team for years like me, something could upset them. Mm. And it might not be at time. It could be yeah, the, of course. a day after, a week after, a month after, something just could, could trigger. Uh, so we have a really good well-being uh, yeah. process in most teams. And that's become really um, right up front in the last four or five years. Um, yeah. And... Every team member will have a, a mentor, uh, some description. There, will, there are people that are trained in uh, signposting people and looking after people, uh, and that that is something we do very, yeah. very, very robustly compared maybe with the down the pub and have a chat, lads. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which at the time would have worked, no doubt. Um, but things have, have progressed yeah. somewhat, haven't they, yeah. over the years? Um, and it's great to see that all of these things are now yeah. in place. You know, um, I mean, but again, all of these things, they 
they cost money, don't time, they? So money, it's important. Uh, more commitment from various people, uh, but it's actually really, really, really important. Um, uh, you know, because incidents do happen, and incidents happen to team members. You know, uh, fortunately, not very often. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, f- for me, ever seeing a child in in, in pain or uh, in, severely injured is. I always find that difficult. The thought, the thought of dealing, going to a call yeah. out of somebody you know, you know, that could be particularly difficult. Yes. Yeah, uh, there are all sorts of things that um, uh, can be very difficult for for team members. And you know, over the years, if you think about some of the things that, that teams have been involved with, you know, um, Lockerbie. Um, Kendall train yeah. cash, chat running around shooting in West Cumbria, um, the Cocklers on Morecambe Bay. That was twenty-two fatalities. Yeah, yeah, I was out all night on that one. You know, you know, really, really realistically, you always you're prepared for going to an incident of, of somebody injured or perhaps two people injured. You never, in all your training, in yeah. you sort of mindset really sort of prepared for those sorts of incidents where there's a, a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, you know, team members mm. can be involved. Teams get called to um, MISPAs and, um, you know, suicide incidents, uh, you know, and those are, those are pretty right. difficult sometimes to, you know, to put in place uh, in your head. Uh, very sad. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole range of reasons yeah, why it's yeah. really important we've got all this well-being uh, stuff in place and it you know as operations director i feel a lot more confident for all of my three and a half thousand colleagues that right across the board teams have really <laughs> massively moved ahead with that area of human skills and looking after each other yeah yeah um, in terms of training, Mike, if somebody was to become a mountain leader, uh, sorry, a mountain rescue yeah. team member, what sort of training and how long does that okay, take? Okay, well, it will it'll probably vary from team to team because they'll all have slightly different processes and, uh, and whatever. But I, I guess it, in general, it'll probably start with some sort of interview process, which might involve some a day out on the hill or something, or some kind of practical thing as well as an interview. And then, yeah. and then a team member will generally be a probationary team member for a period of a year or even more in some cases. Um, and that okay. gives them the opportunity to start getting to know team members, gives them the opportunity to start learning the skills yep. and to really find out actually if it's for them and whether they can actually make that commitment. Yeah. Um, and us to decide whether that person really is the right person and, and, you know, for want of a better word, has the skills and fits into the team because actually the most important thing is the teamwork yeah. between people. Yeah, everybody thinks about the skills. Yeah, that's the, it's not the easy bit, but, you know, that's the first thing that jumps to your mind. But actually how somebody fits with the rest of the team is really, really important. Um, yeah, so yeah. it would be a period of, anywhere from six months to a year is probably about average um 
with continual looking by maybe the training officer or one of the deputies or a mentor for that person, how, how they're doing, you know, um, supporting them, working with them uh, to get them to a point of um, they tick enough boxes to be able to, you know, be useful on call-outs. In my own team, we don't actually initially let yeah. uh, probationers go on call-outs because we feel that we've got enough on our hands without having to look after one of our own. Um, and we wait till they've right. been a probationer for a while before we start selectively allocating them to actual call-outs. So it's kind of a graduated process. Right, Some teams, okay. um, from the word go as probationers, they're going on, on call-outs. Other teams have, have different processes. So there isn't a unified entry method in that sense, but it's pretty much that gives a, gives a picture of the the kind of road for a, a, a new team member. Uh, some teams uh, yeah and you know i can imagine it not being an easy process no, no it's not it's not an easy process and sometimes we have to have some very diff, definite discussions with people actually we think you should go away and get some more hill experience and then come back to us if it's still what you want to do yeah usually hopefully we've we've kind of undercovered and found that uh in the very initial stages um Basically, we have not yeah. the capacity to be teaching people basic skills. They should be competent hill walkers or mountaineers or climbers. Uh, you know, a mountain rescue team isn't, you know, there to teach those basic skills. They should be there. We're, we're there to enhance those uh, and to teach the specific rescue skills. Yeah. Um, it's how I would see it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, um, what I'll do is, if I can, if if you could just sort of outline to us um, the best ways that people can uh, sort of follow mountain rescue teams and to donate to them. I mean, you work for Mountain Rescue England and Wales as the umbrella body. Um, can people directly uh, donate to yep. to them? Yeah. So on the Mountain Rescue England and Wales site, there is you know a donation and gift aid form. Uh, that you could give directly to Mountain Rescue England Wales. I would urge people to think about, well, maybe I want to support my local team. Um, and, you know, yeah. try and find out what their local team is. Uh, and, you know, the, every team will have a website and every team will have very bold up front on their how to donate and gift aid. Um, you know, find out your local team or your local region uh, and maybe give to that. Uh, you know, if you wanted to give more generically, fine. If it comes to Mountain Rescue in, in Wales, it will benefit Mountain Rescue as a whole. Um, that's for sure. But mm -hmm. some some people may feel they want to just yeah. really get behind their local team. And, and I would encourage that, to be honest. I think that's a great thing to do. And then you can yeah. get engaged. Yeah, I think that's, with, a, that's a, a great You, know, you get signed up maybe to your local team's newsletter and find out what your local team's doing um, and support them. You know, Mountain Rescues, uh, Mountain Rescues at a local level and a local team, and that's first and foremost. People, you know, when people ask me, 
I'm a member. I'm a member of Dun Furnace team, a logistic team. First and foremost, I'm a rescuer on the ground. The other stuff I do is is extra, and that's great. But you came into it to be doing it in your local area. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, I think most team members feel very passionate about their their own team uh, and a real sense of belonging and community. You know, volunteering for their local community, although large numbers of people obviously are from away, you know, some instances are from locals. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, it's easy to overlook the, the more local ones and the, the smaller teams like you, we, we alluded to earlier on, but actually they're the ones that need the funding the most, um, yeah. more more, yeah. more often than uh, not. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you could like any sort of set of businesses or whatever, do you know, your, your, your top 15, 20 teams and what their funds are and whatever. And then it would be a shocking difference between them and the other 20 or 30 teams. Um, yeah. So we all need, to, yeah. we all need to support and whichever team you give it to or, or the national, it'll hundred percent be used in a very, very uh, profitable way towards what we're trying to do. Yeah, of course, of course. Now, last thing I want to ask you, Mike, as uh, we're now heading into the, the shorter days <laughs> yeah. and, and, and darker months. Look at the graph um, in front of me, right? Because no, no doubt there will be people... The graph in front of me <laughs> No doubt there will be people... About um, midnight tonight. <laughs> for two... That's, that's exactly yeah. what I'm getting to. <laughs> there's going to be people getting caught out left, yeah. right and centre as we head into uh, the clocks going back and the days yeah. becoming shorter and people not yeah. planning for that. So what top tips can you give people for um, for going out at this time of year and yeah. into the winter so months? It's time to evaluate what you're carrying. It's even more time to doubly check the forecast and what you're planning to do. And it's, you know... Whatever hill it is you're going to is going to be there another day. If it's blowing a hulu, it's going to be really cold or it's going to be snowing or whatever. You know, think about it. You know, am I kitted? Do I really want to do this? Yeah. Could I do this another day? Um, so is the plan and the weather and my experience the, you know, the right combination? What am I carrying? I need to carry a bit more in winter. Some more layers, a bit more food. My top tip would be carry a second yeah. head torch. It could be a little cheapo. So you're mm -hmm. not fiddling around in the dark trying to find yep. your spare batteries to change in your head torch. Just have a little three, four quid cheapo second one that you just pull it out and put it on and carry on. Um, spare gloves. Yeah. You know, hats and gloves and, you know, enough layers, vitally important. If your hands get cold, your head gets cold, your feet get cold, you start getting miserable. Um, yeah. Make sure that going back to mapping, you know, if you've got a huge big map and it's windy, the likelihood of it being blown all over the place or blown mm -hmm. out your yeah. hands is quite big. So if you are using your mapping on, on, a, on a phone, and you've got your GPS on, that is going to sap your battery power. Make sure you've got some kind of backup or a second phone 
if you needed it for an emergency you know if it gets to the end of the day and you've been yeah your map's been on on the screen all day and your gps running it's just going to run out of juice just when you actually need to use your phone for an emergency so either have carry a backup or have yeah. more than one phone yeah. um i use little bits of places i'm going regularly i've got little bits of map cut down into smaller pieces uh laminated um I think, you know, going forward with snow and ice, you know, we're into a whole different level of experience and competence, you know, of having crampons and knowing how to use them, an ice axe and how to use it, uh, maybe ski poles, um, uh, and thinking, yeah. do I have the skills for these? And I, my experience is sometimes the hills, when they haven't got too much snow, and from the valley, you can't see the amount of ice there is on paths and stuff. Actually, sometimes it's when it's icy and not necessarily a huge amount of snow that people come across as slipping and um, getting into trouble. Yeah. And then if you, you know, you do slip or fall, yeah. there isn't lots of snow. Uh, so what there is, is lots of boulders and it's not going to be a good outcome. Um, so I, I think the more you get into wintry conditions, the more you should be considering um, your experience, what you're carrying, what your plan is, and the, and the weather. Yeah, that's three three things there that I think we can yeah. all take from that. So, uh, I'll, again, I'll reiterate all of these things in the show notes so that people yeah. can follow that. One more top tip, Brian. Register your phone for text 999 service. This was originally brought. This was originally okay. brought out for deaf people. It is now available to anybody. You just Google register phone for text nine nine nine. When it's wild and windy and whatever, you cannot hear a word the control room inspector or or a mountain rescuer is asking you on the other end of the phone. Whereas if you can text backwards and yeah. forwards, you can be absolutely sure that. What you're saying is received and what's being said to you. And it uses much less signal and much less power. Quite often you can get through with text when you can't get you can't ah, get through right, with phone okay. at all. So register your phone for nine 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 text service. What a top tip that is. Um I have heard of that in the past and I think I may have registered a long time ago, but I'd completely forgotten probably, about it. So probably said by uh, me. That is a great tip. <laughs> uh, registering for that. <laughs> oh thank you for that mike um I, I just want to say thank you very much again for your time today mike i've uh i've really enjoyed chatting to you and um learning some of the things that uh, about how mountain rescue operate and um and how important it is uh for for fundraising as well which i, I knew anyway but it's just nice to hear it from somebody actually doing it so thank you yeah. so much for that um um, what I'll do is again, I'll just reiterate. I'll get all these sh all the things that we've mentioned there in the show notes that people can uh, donate to the cause because it is it is vitally important. Um, we all we all thank you, um, even though we don't probably show. We all thank you in Mountain Rescue for the work that you do. Um, and I guess we only do that when we when we really need you, but we never know when we're yeah. going to need you. So it's. Um, you know, it's great to have that that chat with you today and to sort of raise awareness as well. So thank yep, you very much. No problem. And obviously, if people want any other information, 
you know, they can go through any of the team's websites, talk to teams. Uh, I don't mind people emailing me, you know, either. Um, we're here to help and give best best advice we can. Yeah, of course. Thank you very much, Mike. Okay, Ryan. Good to talk with you. What a great guy Mike is. So much experience. And I am truly grateful to Mike for giving up his time to chat with me. And as Mike said, if you can donate, please do so to your local mountain rescue team. As lovers of the outdoors, we never know when we'll need their help, and they really are our heroes. Take a look at the Be Adventure Smart website for more top tips on being safe in the outdoors. The link is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed listening, please leave a five-star review on your podcast streaming service. It helps make the podcast easier to find for new listeners. You can also become an official podcast supporter by joining the Patreon supporters page. You can get your hands on Summit to Talk About stickers or even join Summit Else, the exclusive supporters tier to receive bonus episodes and exclusive behind-the-scenes content, as well as a super cool shiny Summit Else sticker. Check out the link in the show notes or through the bio on Instagram. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I'll see you all in the next one.